thought it was my turn, and then I wasn't sure. Hebrews chapter 9 tonight. Hebrews chapter 9. Beautiful songs we sang tonight. I know who holds tomorrow. Isn't that a wonderful truth? You know what's amazing? I don't know if this ever happens to you, but sometimes my mind wanders. Does your mind ever wonder? And uh, even as we were singing that second song before the offering, my mind was wandering, and it was wandering into an area of doubt. And then I immediately had to say to myself, now, first of all, why are you even thinking about this, and why are you doubting? And uh, then right after that we sang, I know who holds tomorrow, and I needed that confirmation, and so that is a blessing. Hebrews chapter 9 tonight, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we will get started. Father, it is good to be in your house tonight, and Lord, it is good to be reminded of really just your faithfulness, and it's good to be reminded of uh, the, the relationship that we can have with you and how, while it can be made sweeter uh, each day on this earth, it is wonderful to know that one day we will have a complete uh, relationship with you as it was designed to be, and I'm thankful for that, and I'm looking forward to that day. And uh, again, I just appreciate and enjoyed the music tonight, and I thank you for those songs, Lord, that encourage us and that remind us of your faithfulness and your truths and uh, just your goodness. I pray that you'd bless the effort to preach your word tonight. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, I just want to remind you of this very quickly. We took a break from our study of Hebrews, and in doing so, I reminded us that we as men and women of God need to be men and women of prayer. And while that is so basic and while that is so obvious and while everyone knows this, it is true that you and I, we get busy, and with all the busyness of life and with all the activity of life, so many times the basic elements of the Christian life begin to slip and we fail to do what we ought to be doing, and so many times the prayer life of an individual slips. And so I just wanted to remind us then, and I want to remind us again tonight, that you and I need to be praying. We need to be men and women of prayer. We need to be praying not only for ourselves and our needs and, and our desires, but we need to be praying for the needs and the issues that other people are dealing with because all around us people are struggling and people are dealing with things. People are wrestling with their own battles, and we need to be men and women of prayer. I don't know what your week looked like by way of your prayer life, but if you didn't get it together last week, I hope you will get it together this week. All right? And take that time. Take, take the time and make the effort to get alone with God. Just, I'm going to dedicate this time not to the Lord and something else. But I'm going to dedicate this time to just that sweet communion between myself and the Lord. That being said, it was a few weeks ago that we began chapter 8. And I want to remind us of what chapter 8 dealt with very quickly so that we understand the context of things and the flow of things. In chapter 8, in the, verse, in the first verse of the chapter, the writer said this, that this was the sum, okay? This is the sum of everything that had been written to this point. And that meant this is the most important thing that you could get. From everything that's been written, 
of everything that's been said, this is the most important thing. And what he said after that was this, is that the work of Jesus Christ was complete and the work of Jesus Christ was finished. It is a wonderful truth to know that nothing else needs to be done in order for a person to obtain salvation. Jesus Christ paid it all. Jesus Christ took care of everything. And so there is no more need of the priest and the works of the priest and the high priest, etc. And then he went on to say, and to make this point clear, that just because the work of Christ is done by way of sacrifice, it's not as though that Christ is in heaven sitting doing nothing. Again, the writer wanted to explain that the, the role of Christ now is to serve as a mediator between God and man. And so the fact that you and I can have a personal relationship with God hinges on the willingness of Christ to be that go-between for us. And again, if you think about it, that is an amazing, an amazing truth to know that God would, or that Christ would be willing to intercede for us and to mediate on our behalf to God. And then as we finished up the chapter, we watched as in verse number 13, he explained that the old covenant or the new covenant or the, the first covenant rather, uh, that it was soon going to decay and wax old and ready to vanish away. And it seems as though if you look at the context, it seems as though he was indicating or referencing the temple that uh, the Jews were accustomed to by way of religious association. And he was showing them, it seems, and it appears as though he was trying to, to give them an, a heads up, so to speak, that everything they had identified their faith with by way of works was about to be wiped out and there would be no substance to it and there would be no value to it. And I tried to remind us two weeks ago that so many people place their confidence in their own works. They place their confidence in, in their associations, and at some point it will be revealed that that is not enough and that is not what satisfies the demands of God. So that's what we dealt with in chapter 8. I enjoyed chapter 8. I don't know if you did or not. I enjoyed chapter 8, and I'm looking forward to chapter 9, and I hope you are as well. If you're not, you've got a rough 30 minutes ahead of you, all right? That being said, tonight I want to ask you a question. It's a simple question. Just answer it in your mind, as I've said many times before, as you see fit. I want to ask you if you have ever engaged in a project, and when you engaged in that project, you knew that you knew what you were doing. You ever done something like that? You were maybe going to work on the car. Maybe you were going to work on something around the house. And because of your experience, because you have done this multiple times, you knew what you were doing, and there was no real concern associated with it. There were no real doubts associated with it. You knew what you were doing, and because you knew what you were doing, you had a peace of mind associated with what you have done. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Sure. Feels good, does it not? It feels good to know that what you're doing is right and to know that what you're doing is accurate, to know that what you're doing is the way it's supposed to be. But in light of that, I want to ask you this. Have you ever done something and you didn't quite know for sure if what you were doing was the right thing? Man, I've been there so many times. Every job that I have done around the house, I have questioned myself. Whenever we moved the washing machine from inside to the garage, we had to run that drain line 
And for months and even years, I questioned whether or not we put that thing together the way that we should have. And so Susie would attest to this, that more than once, I crawled under the house just to make sure the drain lines were still where they were supposed to be and that there were not large puddles of water gathering underneath the house. I did that, and I crawled under my house because of doubt. Whenever we remodeled the kitchen, we had a leaky water line. I think I fixed it. But you know what I did before I sheetrocked the wall? I took an old dry sponge and I set it there underneath where the leak had been. And my logic was this. If there is a slow leak, at least it'll take a while for the sponge to get drenched before it starts damaging the wood. Now, that was several years ago, and you know what I found myself thinking about, I don't know, about a month or so ago? I found myself questioning, I wonder how wet that sponge is right now. I wonder when we're going to step someplace on the floor and water just kind of seep up out of the hardwood. There is still this sense of doubt in my mind that I did not fix it correctly. Whenever I've added lights to the house, I've thought to myself, I wonder if the smoke alarm will go off soon enough. And again, the examples could go on and on. Now, if you've ever been in a position where you doubted whether or not you had done something right, I think that you would agree with this, that that can lead to a little bit of anxiety. Maybe not. But for some of us, not only does it lead to some anxiety, it can lead to some worry, it can lead to some uneasiness. And so as wonderful as it is to know that we know that we know that we have done this correctly, just the opposite is true when we have that hint of doubt in our mind as to whether or not we did do something correctly. Now, as you keep that in mind, notice in chapter 9, verse number 1, we're going to look at a couple of verses tonight, but in a large portion of Scripture, okay? A lot of this is repetitive, and I don't want us to just get bogged down in this. But if you notice in verse number 1, here's what the writer does. He continues writing about the first covenant and the ordinances. So he says, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service, and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made. So the writer is talking about the tabernacle. He is not writing about the temple, though there would have been many similarities, of course, between the two. But he said, For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So this would have been the outer portion of the tabernacle, okay, within the parameters of the tabernacle, but not where the Holy of Holies rested. It says in verse number 3, And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. So if you've ever seen drawings or pictures or renditions of the tabernacle, you know that there was an outer area and then there was the inner sanctuary, what we refer to as the Holy of Holies, and he explains in verse number 4 what was in the Holy of Holies. He said, Which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden 
uh, pot and had, that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. So he's explaining not only the setup of the tabernacle, but what was located in the Holy of Holies. And again, this is not essential to the message tonight, so I just want us to see it and then to move on. And then he said in verse number 5, he said, And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. All right, so he's explaining how the cherubims or the angels of glory shadowed over the mercy seat there in the Holy of Holies. Then he says in verse number 6, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the services or the service of God. So the priest would be able to enter into that outer area or that first area of the tabernacle. But he says in verse number 7, But into the second, that being the Holy of Holies, went the high priest alone once every year, but he did not do so, he says, without blood. He says, as he entered in once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors or the sins or the transgressions of the people. So you understand what the writer is saying, right? The priests, they could go into the outer area, but whenever it came to the Holy of Holies, the high priest would only enter in once a year for the errors or the transgressions or the sins of the people. Now let's listen to this because this is important. And he never went in without blood of the goats and the calves because we understand from the previous messages that the priest would have to not only take care of his sins, or he not only did he take care of the sins of the people, he had to take care of his own sin before he would enter in. Okay? And so it says in verse number 8, The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. Now, of everything that took place in the tabernacle, of everything that took place by way of the activity of the priest and the high priest themselves, <coughs> notice what he says in verse number 9. He said, which was a figure for the time then present. So what does it mean for something to be a figure? It means this, for it to be a type or for it to be symbolism. So everything that the priest and the high priest did, that was a symbolism at the time for things that would one day take place. So he says, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect. What does it mean for something to be perfect? It means for something to be complete. So if you've been a part of this study of Hebrews, here's what you know. You know that the writer has made clear that the old covenant or the first covenant had limitations in what it could accomplish. It could only do so much in the life of the child of God. Does that sound familiar? It ought to sound familiar. We talked about that extensively a couple of sermons ago, okay? So the first covenant, there were only so many things it could do, and so it was not able to complete the person. It was not able to do everything that was necessary by way of that relationship with God. It was limited. So notice what he said. He said that could not make him perfect that did the... that 
could not make him that did the service perfect. But notice what he said next. As pertaining to the conscience. As pertaining to the conscience. Try to look interested in this, okay? Fake it if you have to. The conscience. What is it talking about whenever the writer speaks of the conscience? You and I would say something like this if we oversimplified it. It's that little voice in our head that tells us what is right and what is wrong. We would refer to that maybe as the leading of the Holy Spirit, but back then, them not fully understanding what the Holy Spirit was, they had a conscience that would let them know this is right or this is wrong. But here is what the writer said in verse number 9, that could not make him that did the service, uh, the service perfect pertaining to the conscience. Okay, why is that important? Well, with the first covenant, with the old system and the old way of things, here is what you had. You had man responsible for a right relationship with God through offerings and through sacrifices, by coming to the temple, by way of presenting them to the priest. Listen now, that may or may not have been right with God, who may or may not have done things correctly, who may or may not have been serving with the right heart, the right spirit, the right attitude. There, there were a lot of variables involved in bringing your offering or your sacrifice to the temple at that time. The high priest himself had to deal with his own sin before he could deal with the sins of the nation for God. Does this make sense? And so here are the children of Israel, and we're talking about the tabernacle, and again, it would have been true of the temple, but here are the children of Israel, and they want to be right with God. They want to have a relationship that is pleasing with God, but who is that relationship dependent upon? Again, it is dependent upon them and what they did. Now, I don't know about you, but that could lead to some doubt. That could lead to a measure of uncertainty. Can you imagine if every time you sinned, you had to figure out what you had to do to make things right with God? Now, is this a turtle dove kind of an offense, or is this a goat kind of an offense? Is this a goat kind of an offense, or a calf kind of an offense? I mean, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to take care of? What is my part in all of this? In order to maintain a right relationship with God, in order for my conscience to be clear, for me to know that everything is right and nothing was wrong, everything depended upon them. And I'm telling you that if everything depended on me, it would make me a miserable individual by way of my relationship with God. So he says in verse number 9, that though all of this was a type, that though all of this served a purpose, that though every bit of this was a shadow of things to come, what Christ was going to do, he said it was not perfect as it related to the conscience of the men and the women who would go through the ritual and the ordinances of the covenant. 
So in verse number 10, he says this, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come an high priest of good things to come. This is a good thing, okay? Verse number 11, that's a wonderful transition. If you've zoned out, this would be a good time to zone in. He says in verse 11, But Christ being come an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. What Christ did was not something of an earthly manner. What Christ did was not something that was built with hands. And where Christ ministered, it was not something that you could build and erect and go to like you could the tabernacle or the, or the temple. But he said it was not made with hands, it is to say, not of this building. And he says in verse number 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves. Okay, so again, we're talking about the high priest who would enter into the Holy of Holies. And he did so, and he would not go in without the blood. But he would offer it for himself and for the heirs of the people. Okay, that is what the high priest would do. But Christ came as a high priest, and he, as he came as a high priest, he said in verse number 12, He did not come with the blood of goats and calves. Aren't you thankful for that? Someone says, I don't know if I'm thankful for it or not. I promise you, you're thankful for it, and I'll show you why in just a minute. Notice what it says. He said, but by his own blood, he entered into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Remember chapter 8? Here's the most important thing that you can get from this. Of everything I've said, of everything I've written to this point, you need to know that the work of Christ is complete. The work of Christ is done. He said in verse number 12, he said, Listen, when Christ came, he did not enter into that holy of holies. He did not enter into the sanctuary or the tabernacle with the blood of goats and calves, but he rather entered in with his own blood, that which would have been perfect blood, okay? into that place, having obtained eternal redemption. What is eternal? It is everlasting. We could get a little bit excited about this, okay? Eternal, everlasting redemption for us, the writer says, because in verse number 13, he said, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who, through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, what is He saying? He is saying this. Listen, if the blood of goats and calves, if that could satisfy the demands of God for a time and for a season, then how much more can the blood of Christ satisfy the demands of God by way of eternal redemption for us? The blood of God, or the blood of Christ, rather, was far superior over the blood of goats and of calves. And in doing so, he said in verse number 14, that as the work of Christ took place, notice he said to God, purge your conscience from dead works... To serve the living God. 
Pastor, I don't know why this is important. He says of the works, he said those were dead works now. Because of the new covenant, all that was now dead. It served no purpose. And you are now able to serve the living God because your conscience now has been purged. What does it mean for the conscience to be purged? It means for that little voice in your head that said, this is right and this is wrong, and I wonder if that was right and I wonder if that was wrong. He said, that's now been purged. That's now been cleansed. That's now been washed. Now, what is he saying? It seems from what he has said that, that what has happened now because of the work of Christ and the Holy of Holies, on the behalf of, of us for that eternal redemption, he is saying that though the old covenant was not able to complete by way of our conscience, where there was always doubt, now because of the work of Christ, that doubt has been removed and the dead works you once participated in, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Now you are able to serve God the way we were designed to serve God. Amen. See, here's what happened when Christ came. It took the burden off of the sacrifice giver to the sacrificee who was Christ who offered himself. And as a result of the work of Christ, it purged the conscience. Now it's no longer about what I have done. It's about what He has done. It's not about whether or not I brought the right sacrifice. It now pertains to the fact that He was and is the perfect sacrifice on my behalf. And so here are the Jews, and here's what they're being told. Though the conscience used to not be able to, to be certain, and you could never know for sure as to whether or not the demands had been satisfied the way that they needed to be satisfied, he is saying, now you can have confidence because your conscience can be purged that everything is the way it's supposed to be, not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done. I'll smile about that. Imagine the confidence that that would have given a Jew in their day. <sighs> it's not about my actions anymore. It's not about what I have done. It's about what Christ has done. Can you imagine the burden and the load that would have been lifted for the Jew that would have accepted that by faith. My conscience, that little voice in my head, is able to say everything is complete. Not because of what I've done, but because of what He has done.
I can go to bed and I can lay my head down and I can rest well tonight, maybe for the first time in many years, maybe for the first time in all of his life or her life, I can go to bed and I can rest easy knowing that my relationship with the Lord is secured, not because of what I've done, but because of what he has done. But have that doubt taken away. To have that uncertainty taken away. To have it replaced with confidence and assurance. To have eternal redemption? I would suspect, maybe I'm wrong, but I would suspect that had to have made a lot of Jews at that time feel very good about this new covenant they were under. Now what is there for us in all of this? Well, this evening I want to share some thoughts with us, all right? Do not be sensitive and do not assume that I'm being critical, all right? Do not assume that I'm being critical and therefore do not be sensitive to what I'm about to say. But this evening I want us to think about, I want us to think about some good, well-intended folks who if they really believe what they say they believe are forced to live with the constant sense of doubt. So I have no idea what you mean, so let me explain. There are many people around us who would tonight say this, that in order to be saved, salvation can only be found through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They would say the right things as it relates to a means of salvation. How do I get saved? You must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. However, because of faulty doctrine, because of bad theology that they were taught, somewhere along the way, here is what they also believe, that while they are saved through the power of Jesus Christ, their salvation and its continuation is dependent upon them. You understand this? I've mentioned this in the past. I'm just going to go through this quickly, but I want us to be aware of this. If for no other reason, just to solidify in your mind why you don't want to be one of these people. Because if you really believe what they teach, then here's what it will do. It will lead to major doubt, and that doubt will lead to serious frustration in your Christian life. See, the Nazarenes, again, not being critical, just being honest with you because I know a lot of them. The Nazarenes believe that Christ is the means of salvation, but a Nazarene will also tell you that you can lose your salvation by certain works that you might do. Now, if you'll think about that for just a moment, though the specifics are horribly different, the, the principle is the same. Can you imagine tonight... Can you imagine tonight going home, laying in bed, saying, I wonder if what I did this past week disqualified me 
Do you know how much doubt that that would cast in our minds? I mean, I, I know what I did last week. I know what I've done the last couple of weeks. I mean, I, I know what I said to my wife last night, and that wasn't very Christian. Or, or I know how I responded to my kids. Or the child may say, I know how I responded to my parents, and that wasn't very Christian. Do you see what's happening in our culture? It's different, and yet the principle is the same. Someone like a good Nazarene who would say, listen, you've got to have faith in Jesus Christ, but after that they would say something like this, well, you know, I mean, now it's dependent upon me. They've basically got to answer this question on a regular basis. Have I been good enough? Well, friend, when you've got to constantly ask that question, your conscience is never perfectly complete before Christ. The Church of God believed this. The Christian Church believes this. The Free Will Baptists believe this. On and on and on, there are, again, well-intended people who are of this mindset that you can do something that would make you lose the salvation that you have been given. So really what they do not believe in, then, is eternal redemption. Because all the emphasis after salvation is placed on the person rather than Christ. Does this make sense? Now, entering into dicey territory, okay? Just a little bit dicey. Not because I think you'll struggle with it, but someone in here may, okay? I don't know. I don't know and you don't know how to tell someone whether or not they're truly saved. You understand this? I've had people say to me before, do you think I'm saved? Hey, I, I can't answer that question. I don't know. But here is what I do know. If we believe in the eternal redemption, if we believe in the eternal security of the believer which I believe that we ought then that helps you and I avoid so many of the questions that people sometimes wrestle with you understand what I'm saying see somebody will say something like this I, I just boy I prayed, but I, I don't remember much about the prayer. Listen, I, I, I can't tell you whether or not then you got saved. I, I, I remember a little bit about it, but I, I don't know for sure. Okay, I, I can't tell you whether or not you've truly done business with God. Okay, I, I cannot tell you whether or not you are saved. But I can say this, that if you truly believe you are saved, I could say to an individual... You've got to place your confidence then, then, not in your works, but the work of Christ on your behalf. And if you will place your confidence not in your works, but in the work of Christ, then all the doubt and all the speculation and all the wonder will go away because when you've truly placed your confidence in his work and not your work, then that is when the conscience is purged 
and you can truly serve the Lord and serve God as you were intended to do. If you've ever wrestled with doubt, if you've ever wrestled with uncertainty, if you've ever wrestled with this idea, I just don't know. You've got to determine whether or not you've done business with the Lord. And again, only you and the Holy Spirit could know that. But if you've ever wrestled with all of this and you say something like this, I truly believe that I got saved at this point in my life, then here's what I would encourage you to do. Stop then wondering whether you were good enough or whether or not you are good enough. Because it is not dependent upon us. It is dependent upon Him and what He has done. And I know that for some of us this is elementary. I know that for some this is basic. But I'm telling you, as I have said in previous messages out of this study, I'm telling you there are people who wrestle. And they wrestle with whether or not they've truly been saved. They wrestle with whether or not they are on their way to heaven when they die. And the problem is this. They are not placing their confidence in what he did. They are wrestling with what they have done. And I just want to remind us that when we get a hold of the glorious truth that he offered an eternal redemption because of his perfect blood that was far superior over the goats and the bulls, when we recognize and get a hold of that truth that it's about what he did and not what we do, you can enjoy peace and confidence like you have never known before. But until you are willing to get there, and until you are willing to accept it, you will always have that nagging doubt that will always make you a frustrated individual. And I can tell you as a doubter, it's no fun to be a doubter. Trust in the work of Christ, what he has done for you, and do not allow the doubt to make your lives miserable. All right? Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Fathers, we come to you this evening. Lord, it is good to be reminded of your work, to be reminded of the eternal redemption provided because Christ went into that holy of holies, not with the blood of bulls and of goats or of calves, but of his own precious blood. Lord, I thank you that we can serve you now as the, we're supposed to and in the way that uh, we ought, with a clear conscience, with a purged conscience. But Lord, if there's someone here wrestling with doubt, they cannot really serve you the way that they're supposed to. It is impossible to serve you in the way that they ought 
when they're constantly wrestling with their own questions. And Lord, it may be that there's someone in here tonight and they would need to be saved. They would need to just really do business with you. I pray that they'd be willing to do so. But at the same time, some may just need to stop worrying about themselves and what they've done and trust in you and what you have done on their behalf. So I pray that you'd bless. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.